Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. I have a very special guest today with me. Father Charles R. Gallagher is a historian, associate professor, Jesuit priest, Associate Professor of History at Boston College, which is just like a mile from here. We had the pleasure of having lunch together. And uh, Professor, I learned about you and your incredible book that I want to mention as we begin. Um, The Nazis of Copley Square, The Forgotten Story of the Christian Front. And I learned about your book on a Rachel Maddow podcast called Ultra, all about the Nazis' infiltration into politics and into the American uh, discussion, radio, Father uh, Coughlin, uh, and the Nazis. And I went, holy mackerel, and I looked you up, and you were nearby. And I so, I'm so grateful for your openness to consent to this interview. So I really want people to understand his history helps inform us for the today and to prepare and protect ourselves for the future. I want to say that uh, this book was published by Harvard University Press. It won a 2022 Catholic Media Association Book Award in history. And I also want to reference your earlier work Uh, if I may, Vatican Secret Diplomacy, Joseph P. Hurley, and Pope Pius XII, which was a Yale press uh, that won the American Catholic Historical Association's uh, John Gilmary Shays Prize. Congratulations. And I'll just finish by saying you study the intersection of intelligence and religion, religion and right-wing movements, the Holocaust, and the Vatican Diplomacy. Wow. And you're currently teaching a course called Religion and Espionage at Boston College. Do you accept people to come in and audit, Professor? Because I'm fascinated by your work. Yeah, absolutely. We have a few seats available now in that course, although it's uh, it's pretty tight, but uh, huh. the students are enjoying it, and we enjoy teaching it. Yeah, and I and I and I, I in looking you up and preparing for this, uh, a former CIA agent did a review of your book, The Nazis of Copley Square, which was on CIA.gov. So right. it was like a, a really truly validated, recognized. You did the good research and shown a light on a very important infiltration into American politics and history. Uh, and that was done by John D. Woodward Jr., who I believe is at Boston University, or at least was. Correct. So yeah. with that, um, I'm going to ask you to to just do a do a introductory thing about how you came to realize that there was a thing here. Mm-hmm. Your background, <laughs> as I l- learned from Rachel Maddow, and your book, and what you learned. So teach us, Professor. Yes. So Steve, first first of all, thank you for having me on your on your podcast. It's a real uh, a real honor and privilege to be here with you. So I think uh, the first thing that your audience might want, need to know is that I'm I'm kind of an old fashioned historian. Uh, I'm the type of person that searches around for stories that haven't been told, and in the academic world, that's 
a gamble uh, mm. because both the academic presses and your audience usually want to pick up a book um, which has an, an initial reference point for them. Uh, mm. So uh, usually a lot, a lot of uh, my, my colleagues in academe and then also those who write for commercial presses will try and find a big topic which most people have heard of and then connect up to that big topic in order to get the entryway into the narrative. Uh, I'm kind of just the opposite. I like to look for hidden stories in history. Yeah. I like to look for people who are behind the scenes, people who haven't really been written about. But I think it's the behind the scenes people and it's the behind the scenes movements that really have impact on the flow of history and how how the impulses and the intellectual uh, strata kind of move forward and, and flow uh, flow forward in in history. So there's a part of me that's um, that that while I I'm, I consider myself an archive rat, I like to I like to burrow into the archives and find material that people haven't looked at before. But there's also I have to, I find that I have to have a almost a salesmanship or a sales uh, a salesperson mentality in trying to get the story out. Because uh, if this latest book, the, the Nazis of Copley Square, the subtitle is The Forgotten Story of the Christian Front. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make, uh, make advances with a story that no one's ever heard about. You know, do you really want to be an author <laughs> of a book about a story that no one's ever heard about before? It's a tough sell. Um, but when I uh, stumbled onto the the history of that organization, I believed that it was a story worth telling. I believed that it, it connected up with impulses uh, in religion, in uh, uh, terrorism, political action, fringe extremism conditioned by religious impulses that, that not only hadn't been told, but I think those stories, those fringe stories, can sometimes tell us more about ourselves, can tell America more about America than the big narratives. And mm -hmm. so that's why I kind of kept digging. I was persistent with, uh, with the research, and I was lucky enough to get it landed uh, at, uh, at Harvard Press uh, through an editor who, who, who really felt that it was an important story to tell. It absolutely is, and very timely, I might add, with the rise of the Nazis and neo-Nazis and the right-wing popularism and QAnon and all kinds of, of uh, actors who want to undermine democracy and freedom of religion. Right, but if I can say, um, when the idea first came to me, you know, some decades ago, but really I started doing the digging about 15 years ago, it wasn't really acceptable to, from an academic point of view, to to research these these fringe right wing movements. Uh, what had kind of pervaded the field was that if you were an academic and you wanted to write about a group of proto fascists or neo fascists, there was the real academics would kind of raise an eyebrow. They'd say, you know, what's this? What's this person doing? Do, because the one of the main points was not precisely not to give academic credibility to ideas from the right and from the mm. far right. Because mm. my, my book argues that 
all these people who who become extremists, they're motivated by ideas. Many of the ideas are still resonant today. Many of the ideas are still mainstream ideas uh, yeah. that were manipulated and distorted in, in various ways to move our people or my people I look at uh, towards towards the fringe and towards the 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 liminal areas uh, and so and so when I was kind of trying to get this published it was really hard to to get somebody to look at it in fact the first publisher I sent it to turned it down um, mm -hmm. f both for ideological reasons and then other reasons uh, they yeah. said that you know the 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 group as as you may indicate to your audience the group tried to overthrow had an attempt to overthrow the US government in 1940 that plot failed and again to mm. your audience that was 1940 they were yep. charged with seditious conspiracy uh, the same charges that have been bandied about in the press in the last two years uh, and so at, and and so but they failed in that attempt and they were never they were never indicted and so the people who were reviewing my proposal for the book originally said well they don't matter because nothing happened and my view was oh i think they do matter i think that these ideas are being put into the mainstream as early as 1940, I think they tell us something. And they're combining with religion. It's combining with extremism. It's combining with fascism. And I think I, think I, 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 was, um, I was disappointed for sure. Uh, but then I was able to move on and continue. I basically continued to do more research and discovered more information that yep. made, the, made the plot thicken even further. I'm very grateful to you for your persistence. And, you know, you're a true academic that, you know, as opposed to a marketer going, what's the popular story? You're like, let's think about things of consequence, of really significant point. And I wanted to do this interview with you because I didn't feel like Rachel Maddow gave you enough kudos because I believe most of her whole podcast was based on your research, but especially I live in Massachusetts and there's a resurgence of these same forces. And I believe it's Massachusetts and Michigan had the biggest um, Nazi concentration. Correct. And, yeah. and so thank you for your due diligence and your continued success. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Weren't you a were you a, a a police officer or an intelligence official before becoming a Jesuit priest? Yeah, so I I joined religious life in my mid thirties, uh, and before I uh, joined uh, religious life, I was a police officer in my hometown. Ah. Uh, I started out as an auxiliary police officer, as a summer special officer, okay. uh, and then went on and and spent uh, a, a year year round on that on that department. But that that yeah. was back in the days when uh, when the special officers were getting the full training of what a ordinary police officer would get. So I was mm -hmm. I was you know nineteen and twenty years old being trained on on the on weaponry on semi automatic weaponry and and other weapon systems, and I really enjoyed police work. In fact, I if I didn't have a religious vocation, I thought I'd probably do it for my career. Uh, mm -hmm. But my, I was uh, a very kind of, I was a devout Catholic and I was, mm -hmm. I was going to um, church every day and, and I just felt called to, to religious life. 
Right. So that's that I, I ended up from moving from the police car, running radar late at night mm-hmm. <laughs> on weekends to actually uh, studying for the priesthood. Right. But wasn't it that exposure to assault rifles that you saw a picture or am I misremembering a bit of your story? Yeah. So so the folks that I study, they um, they cached weapons. They were able to get a hold of military grade weaponry. And when they attempted to overthrow the government in 1940, a number of photographs appeared in the press at the time mm-hmm. of them holding Springfield 1903 rifles. Your audience might not know what that is, but it is a huge rifle that shoots about a three-inch shell. Uh, it's a bolt-action rifle, and it's a, entire, it's a weapon of war. It's entirely lethal. Right. It, it, was, uh, it was designed in the, in the period just after the Spanish-American War, but it, it went and uh, was the weapon of choice for, in World War I and then uh, was used also during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, replaced eventually by the M1 Garand, but the, these um, these these uh, folks were very very much attached to a gun culture, and uh, with their with the backing of these pro fascists uh, that they were working with, they continued to cash weapons in that way, and uh, and and there I argue in the book that their plot was was should have been taken more seriously because it was so lethal. In other words, the weaponry was so lethal. Yeah. I was able to get FBI documents released that no one had ever seen before. And uh, one, of the, one of the struggles for me as a priest was, um, was where in the book I, I had to make a decision about whether or not to put in a paragraph which described how to make a, how to make a pipe bomb. Mm. And... Um, to me, it was just chilling. It was, it was captured in one of the FBI reports. Their informant had word for word kind of uh, given a verbatim report about what the bomb maker was doing. And um, for about 75, 80 years, this group, the Christian Front that I write about, had always been dismissed as a bunch of uh, clowns and crazies who, who were who were simply benign on the mm. political spectrum and they, they offered no threat. So one of the things I decided to do was to, um, was, was to put that piece of the puzzle uh, into the book. And it's absolutely chilling on, yeah. on what they were doing in their basements. And uh, that, the, the reason I, the kind of the, the reason I, I chose to, to include some of that material was because I wanted to upend what historians previously had had been writing about this group that they didn't not only that they didn't mean anything but that that they were not uh, a serious threat to national security. I wanted to change that right. that narrative. Right. And when I was researching my last book, uh, The Cult of Trump, I wrote about Father Charles Coughlin and his radio show that was listened to by millions of people. And uh, there's a connection between him and the Christian front, correct? Correct. Yeah, Father Charles Coughlin is kind of the inspirational leader of the Christian front. The Christian front is the paramilitary section of Father Coughlin's movement, the U- Union for Social Justice. And he started in 
mid-1939, he started a group called the Christian Front because, in his mind, the communist governments in Europe, who called themselves the Popular Front governments, were taking up arms against the institutional Catholic Church, and, and they were persecuting and, and murdering a number of uh, priests and religious, particularly in Spain, but this had happened in Mexico mm -hmm. 10 years earlier. So Coughlin wasn't buying this Popular Front movement as a kind of democratic government positioning. He saw them as true red communists who basically wanted to eradicate all religion. And so his group was going to paramilitarize and instead of, and as a counterpoise to the popular front, he devised an organization he called the Christian Front. Mm -hmm. uh, the Christian Front had about a hundred thousand members on the East Coast in the 30s and 40s. But what even the FBI didn't know was that that Father Coughlin and his his lieutenants, his kind of foot soldiers on the ground, had created cell structures within the larger mm. Christian Front movement of about 12 to 17 men who were trained in military tactics mm -hmm. and in weaponry. Those, those units, which they called variously the action committees or the country gentlemen, mm. um, those those units would were paramilitarized and undertook military training. The larger uh, members of the organization they didn't know that those paramilitary cells existed. Those mm -hmm. paramilitary cells were secret even within the organization. But in my view, I was able to uncover the FBI files on on these on the in, mm -hmm. uh, informant files, and they're absolutely chilling in terms of this group these cells, cell units paramilitarizing the reasons that they want to paramilitarize the, the, the danger and the danger that they present to the American public, in my view. Right. And, and Coughlin was virulently anti-Semitic. Correct. And yeah. Say a little bit more about also, uh, is it uh, Herbert Sch Schultz? Oh, yeah. So Herbert Schultz, right. Please. So Father Coughlin in Detroit, he is... Um, as your audience may know, he's a very prominent presence on the radio in the 1930s. In fact, in the, in, by 1938, they estimated he had something like 30 million listeners to his radio show each week. And mm. keep in mind, there were only 120 million people in the country at that time. So about one-fifth of the entire population was listening to him. Mm. He becomes more and more anti-Semitic uh, over time, and he becomes more anti-Semitic because he's he he combines uh, he doesn't see any demarcation between Jews and communism. He mm. believes, in fact, that communism itself is a construction of Judaism. It's a mm. secularized religion, which is kind of contrived by Marx as a substitute for mm. religious pract Jewish religious practice. So mm. he he preaches this kind of bizarre myth which which historians have looked at called Judeo-Bolshevism that mm. the two that, that Judaism and Bolshevism are symbiotic and that mm. they were they were uh, symbiotic at the creation that that they, Judaism was present at the creation of Marxism uh, and Leninism for that matter too mm. and so so when he when father Coughlin sees a Jew um, he sees a communist 
So mm. every Jew is a communist and every communist is a Jew. The only, the only real categorization Coughlin makes is whether, whether the Jew is a practicing Jew or not. Mm. Uh, because with a, uh, with a connection to the Godhead, to, to a, a relationship with God, then he feels that no, no true Jew could actually be a real communist if they, if they permitted themselves to be uh, subject to, uh, to the Almighty. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So he, um, he becomes much more radically anti-Semitic, and he, he gives permission for his, his own people to paramilitarize because, um, and, and actually his, his plot to, um, to, to try to take over the government is a plot in, uh, that is meant to counter what he saw as Jewish infiltration of the U.S. government. Right. So as, as President Roosevelt puts Jews in various positions in his cabinet and on the Supreme Court, Coughlin and his followers don't see, say, for example, you know, uh, uh, Felix Frankfurter or Justice Brandeis as as Jewish appointees. They see them as communist infiltrators of the U.S. government who are going to subvert the government. And that's why that's how Coughlin gets his people to believe that it's okay for them to take up arms and to cash arms. And uh, all I can say is I'm hearing a lot of rhetoric today about uh, communists, anyone in the Democratic Party that opposes the uh, extreme right wing, they're commies, according to uh, some of these spokespeople. Yes, I've noticed that, too. There's been a a more full-throated anti-communism coming about lately uh, in various quarters. and that that that's true. We haven't seen that. I I you know as a historian, it's kind of you know I I see it as kind of an interesting kind of quaint uh, recrudescence of something that I've been studying for years. Um, but yeah, it's 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 not quaint. Yeah, it's not quaint. Yes, I know. Scary. I know. It's very scary. Talk about the Nazis and their their infiltration of government and their desire to keep us the United States out of World War Two out of protect, you know, coming to the defense of, of uh, the UK. Yeah, so there are a couple other historians who are trying to work on the exact connection between Nazi intelligence in the United States and these pro-fascist movements. Mm-hmm. Um, what my book shows is that for the first time we have a mem- uh, an American citizen who begins to take direction from a Nazi spy in America. Um, this particular spy was named Herbert Scholz. He was under diplomatic cover. His, his story about working in the U.S. had to deal with him being the consul, the German consul in Boston. And so on the face of it, he was a minor diplomat for Germany in the United States. But in right. fact, he was a masterful spy. And, mm. and was assigned to Boston in 1938 uh, mm-hmm. for reasons you can read about in the book, which are fascinating. But he set up a number of spy rings in New England. And again, when I just say this kind of casually, the, 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 no one knew this stuff before the book was published. I mean, no one, no one really knew about any of this stuff. And, and you found out because of FOIA requests, Cor- FOIA? Yeah, to, correct. To, yeah, correct. And then I, I, I'm so grateful for your, your scholarship and that you're willing to speak out and educate yeah. us because 
people are walking around not understanding the the dots that are right. historical. Please continue. Yeah. So it was. I I knew that uh, in 1960 the State Department released an uh, an interview of this person Scholz after the war. They the Army counterintelligence captured him in Italy of all places, mm-hmm. and and they interrogated him, mm-hmm. and that interrogation uh, was not. Uh, made available into the nineteen until the nineteen sixties, and frankly, no one looked at it. But mm. I, I actually went went down went to uh, the Truman Library in in Kansas City and mm. and got a copy of the inter- of the original interrogation, and I was just fascinated because in the original interrogation, this guy Scholes is asked after the war, kind of like, "Oh, could you give us the the Department of Justice asked, could you let us know what you were doing in Boston when you were the consul there?" Right. And, it was amazing. He basically spilled the beans. He said, mm. oh, yes, I was working with this guy, Francis P. Moran. Uh, I gave him a code name. Moran was fluent in German, which is a fascinating story anyway, because he's a mm. working class Irish Catholic from Boston. And, then, mm. and so we we basically ran uh, an organization together in Boston to do espionage and propaganda work. And this is all sitting in the Truman Library. No one had bothered to read it. So I yeah. thought, gosh, that's pretty amazing <laughs> you know, this guy's this guy's basically spilling the beans on his spy ops in Boston during the war so that's when I I started digging further and basically every chapter was a jaw dropper I simply couldn't believe what they were doing yeah but they were and they were they were interfering with policy as far as I can tell as well as public you know, perception about what was happening in terms of reality. Yeah, and, and I think one of the reasons is that this Scholes character, so the Scholes character, A, is a really smart guy. Now, that's controversial to say because he's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi. Um, but as a historian, I have to kind of see how the, how the mechanism works, like how, they, how their activity ends up being successful. So, for instance, I um, I noticed who his mentors were. Well, his mentors, this guy Scholz, he ends up in Boston. His first mentor was Ernst Rome, who with Adolf Hitler founded the Brown Shirts. And then from the Brown Shirts, he was recruited by Heinrich Himmler, the architect of the Holocaust. Yeah. And then after his first job, after leaving graduate school, was as as the secretary to Rudolf Hess, who oh. becomes the deputy Fuhrer. Okay, mm. so this is where, when I began the interview earlier, these people who are behind the scenes who nobody has ever heard of, Scholz is one of those. Mm-hmm. But Scholz comes to, when Scholz is sent to Boston, they're not just selling some, uh, they're not putting some flunky in Boston. They're, they're, they're putting a machine in Boston, yeah. a yeah. real Nazi killing machine in yeah. Boston. And um, the, the work that he does with Moran is masterful. I mean, one of the things that I was able to do uh, through, through just my digging around was Scholz went and got a PhD in psychology at the University of Leipzig in 1932. Hmm. I, I basically kept hitting the pavement and hitting, I actually got a copy of his doctoral thesis and it is absolutely fascinating. He was, his, his thesis was about, was about a thing called imageless thought, basically how to provoke people to do things that, they, that you want them to do that they might not even think about without them even thinking about it. 
Um, what sounds like mind control to it me. It sounds doc. like, yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, it, it was. It, so it was yeah. in German, correct? It was in German, yeah. University of Leipzig, 1932. It was a short thesis, but uh, the translation of it is absolutely fascinating. I, I would love to see that. Yeah, I, 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 in fact, gave a talk on this to, um, to an organization of uh, intelligence agents in Italy who, who study about mm-hmm. uh, intelligence analysis uh, over last summer. That, that was pretty wild in itself. I want to really learn cool. from you, and <laughs> I want to know what this guy was teaching in the 30s because I – for my work, it, it kind of goes back to Edward Bernays and his 1928 book, Propaganda, and Goebbels tried to uh, hire him to help the Nazi machine. And that whole, you have to create a, a need and then you can sell people anything kind of mentality. Um, but I'm fascinated to connect the historical dots too. Because what I'm seeing now, and everyone is seeing now, is psyops, but on the internet, and in right. massive scale with using people's private data to customize with the use of AI uh, techniques to manipulate the mind. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Can you say anything more about his dissertation before we go back to your to your book? Because you really got my piqued my curiosity. Yeah, so um, in fact, when I, when I was um, giving my paper to the uh, intelligence analysts over there in Europe, uh, one of them came up to me after the, after the conference and said, you know, this concept of Im- imageless thought, it's basically about thought devoid of, uh, devoid of reflection, which basically is uh, pure emotion. So it's mm. thought, it's thought, but the, the, the primary content is emotion. So when in the, in the 1950s and sixties, when kind of analytical philosophy and, and more systematic philosophy took over, all of that emotive stuff kind of went to the wayside. But one of the, uh, one of the, I'll call him a practitioner of intelligence said, I would like to, he said, I would like to read Scholz's dissertation. I would like to talk to you more about this. Because he thought it would be useful precisely to use on the internet. Yeah. That, that the idea of how you create thought without reflection um, to kickstart action was very appealing to this particular guy who probably, for all, I, I could, you know, you can't ask questions to these people, was probably involved in psyops of some there, sort or another. There's no question, and that's exactly what's happening uh, with the radicalization online is what people need to understand from my research and my work is that we like to think humans are rational beings, but we're emotional beings who rationalize, who we have feelings, and then we we generate uh, beliefs to fit that and, or, or motivate people to do behaviors that are so dissonant from their conscience that once they do it, they start uh, altering incrementally their, their belief system to the point where they can believe the opposite of what they believed previously. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so in my book, I think, I think my readers and I think political historians wanted to see Scholz as a spy in terms of 
him being formally trained as a spy in in spy craft in trade craft uh what kind of what academy did he go to uh through the ss to be trained as a spy and my 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 view in the book was shoals was a masterful spy but not because he was constricted by a curriculum he was a masterful spy because he did a phd and basically how to motivate people to do things without them even knowing it, <laughs> that yeah. you're motivating them. I mean, he wrote a dissertation on that. And that's precisely what he does with Moran in Boston. Mm-hmm. Moran, again, for your audience, is the leader of the Christian Front, Father Coughlin's group in Boston. And I argue in the book that uh, Moran and, and Scholes get up to all sorts of no good, both during the war and after the war, in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, the group is is shut down and goes underground. And in, I argue in the book, in some ways, the group is more lethal underground than they are yeah. when they're above ground in the late 30s and early 40s. Yes, absolutely. Oh, Professor, um, I want to say tell us more, but let, is, it, is it not true that the Nazis co-opted at least one uh, politician, or was there more? Oh, yeah. So uh, the network of Nazi intelligence officials in the U.S., uh, the history on that is still pretty murky. So mm-hmm. we, we, know, we know who, who was working uh, with... Um, who who was uh, I would say sympathetic to the Nazi cause and who the Nazis were trying to manipulate. Uh, so there were various senators and congressmen. Uh, uh, Rachel Maddow's podcast mem- uh, mentions a number of these, but there there were there were more than you know Senator Lundeen of of Minnesota. Now the one thing that that the Maddow podcast did not mention was that uh, Senator Lundeen of Minnesota was on the Senate uh, Armed Forces uh, Committee and that he was in charge of whether or not the Americans would adopt the M1 Garand battle rifle. And in the summer and spring, I I get into this in the book, in the summer and Mm. spring of 1940, Scholes and Moran go on this offensive to try to get the U.S. Army to adopt a different gun, a gun no one's ever heard of called the Johnson Rifle. Mm. Well, so here you have this religious organization, which is secretly being controlled by a Nazi spy agent in Boston. Right. And that religious organization is trying to push Congress to adopt a battlefield weapon for the U.S. Army known as the Johnson Rifle. Well, everybody think, well, this is kind of preposterous scheme. Why would the Germans want, uh, want the Americans to adopt this unknown rifle? Well, basically, when th- the first customer to buy Johnson Rifles was uh, with the Netherlands, the Army of the Netherlands. And when hmm. the Germans invaded the Netherlands in June of 1940, in May of 1940, I should say, they came across a whole stockpile of Johnson Rifles. And the one, so they had the specs, they had the technical specs to the Johnson rifle, and therefore they could outgun the Americans on the battlefield if they were to reverse engineer it. The, mm. This sounds strange to our ears, but the German, en- the German army and engineers did not know how to produce 
a semi-automatic rifle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but the Americans were great at it, and the Johnson rifle, which no one's ever heard of, an American rifle, was really terrific at it. And was mm. was really terrific engineering, mm-hmm. so so that's why the Germans wanted the Americans to adopt that, and so so all these senators were being pushed by Senator Lundeen of Minnesota to actually drop, adopt the Johnson rifle, and instead of it being an kind of an autonomous push by Lundeen, he was it was actually being pushed by the Nazis. It's just no one could connect the dots. Right, that's amazing and so upsetting, um, and. Uh, I, I, I can't help but say, uh, I just learned this morning about Marjorie Taylor Greene getting on the Department of Homeland Security. And this is a representative who is espousing QAnon, who is claiming the 2020 election was stolen and Trump won it, just completely non-supporting the Constitution and rule of law currently and now she's wangled her way into a very powerful position where she has access to all kinds of secret information. Very I, gotta, I gotta say, I mean, I was astounded. You know, when I um, there was there was a book that was published in 1967 that was pretty convincing about Lundin having secret meetings with German officials in the embassy uh, in the lead up to World War II. Now, was he giving technical secrets to the Germans? It's unclear because we just don't have that that material. But yeah, there were, there were senators, there was Congressman Jacob uh, Thorkelson, uh, who, who was trying to get Hitler's speeches published in the congressional record. Mm. Um, there were kind of a, a number of different kind of pro-fascists. Well, the other thing too is most of Congress was isolationist at that time. And mm. kind of that was considered to be kind of almost anti-Rooseveltian and some would they try. They tried to cast the isolationists as as being pro-fascists, but in many cases they were just simply um, kind of rudimentary isolationists. Yeah, but I come back to Coglin, thirty million listeners to his incendiary radio show, and radio was the tech. Like now we have Facebook and other right social media, but there was a lot of people listening, and as we know from. From uh, social psychology, a lot of a lot of politicians listen to their to their constituents, and if consti- constituents are being told to contact their congressmen and senators and stay out of the war, then they're going to be believing that that's what they're you know the general good of the public is about. Yeah, and the and then the um, the added kind of effect for Coughlin was his Roman collar. And his mellifluous voice, where he could not just project a media presence, but almost give a moral permissibility over the airwaves to people who would otherwise never think of doing anti-Semitic actions or even right. uh, kind of asymmetric actions that that were you know, political or otherwise that they would never think about doing without the influence of of this media. The media, and we know from psychology that people will follow an authority figure who speaks with certainty and authority. And I do think his collar gave him extra uh, uh, authority in terms of persuasion. Persuasion, but I, professor, I keep coming back to 
uh, Scholes as a, not just a spy, but an activist infiltrator of the United States to recruit and radicalize people to do a coup against the United States government, which is what just try, happened. An attempt just happened violently on January 6th of 2021 of people radicalized. Yeah, I, I, well, one of the more chilling points about that is that that nexus that you just described has gone unknown until my book was published in late 2021. Nobody knew about that. I know. That's why when I learned about you, I'm like, holy mackerel, this is really important. Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was just draw jaw dropping myself. I, I mean I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And then it, you know, you sit back and it not only is this happening, but they're violating all sorts of laws all over the place. Right. And in fact, they're violating the same laws that are on the news cycle that you just go home and watch on the TV. It's crazy. Right. A lot of those laws that were that politicians today are bringing up in all their investigations, those were first put on the books in the 1930s, uh, 19-teens, 1930s. And so right. – um, it's it's so it's almost surreal to kind of be a historian of this this type of movement. But but to your credit, your due diligence, your curiosity to un unearth this, I think it has global repercussions from my point of view. Um, and uh, and as you were talking about uh, the dissertation by Scholz, I re I remembered. Um, that I, I like to talk to ex-CIA folks mm -hmm. when, who, you know, who are, talk mm -hmm. about things that they are allowed to talk about. And in particular, um, a couple of ex-CIA people told me that they all used a book called The Interrogator about the most effective um, um, person who could interrogate a prisoner and get all the information. It was a Luftwaffe Nazi, and the complete opposite of what was done after 9-11 with waterboarding and, and torturing people, this guy would bring food and, and, and treat people with respect and find common ground of, oh, you're a family, you know, you're a father, I'm a father, you know, how old is your kids, and just really build an emotional relationship, and people would spill over time effectively. And I believe um, that's how we found out who did the 9-11 uh, mastermind was through that approach versus the torture mm -hmm. and putting people in Guantanamo Bay to, uh, you know, to threaten them. Yeah. But yeah. I want to come back to, like, we need to learn what works. And historically, mm -hmm. even if it was used by enemies of democracy, uh, they had insights into the human mind. And a lot of people don't know Hitler uh, studied uh, his reactions in a mirror to, and perfected his speaking mm -hmm. tone. He was someone who was sensitized to the whole issue of hypnosis. I think he was, he was hypnotized as part of his treatment for trauma. But I think people don't get the, the, the evolution and development of understanding of, of how minds can be hacked, essentially. Yeah, so maybe I should have said 
the initial reason that Scholes was sent to Boston was to run an intimidation campaign against the former chancellor of Germany, the longest serving chancellor of the Weimar Republic, a guy named Heinrich Brüning, who was hmm. living in Boston. Interesting. So the press didn't know about it, the FBI didn't know about this, but, but Brüning was actually teaching courses in political science at Harvard in mm -hmm. 1937 in 1938 and he began after Kristallnacht in 1938 he began to make pretty vibrant speeches against Hitler and so this is why Scholz was sent as the consul to Boston because clearly Brüning had gotten the attention of Himmler and gotten the attention of Hitler and so they sent Scholz who carried himself as a six foot Two former brown shirt thug who was mm. had in his teens beaten up communists routinely mm. uh, in the streets of of Berlin and Munich, and so uh, so he's sent to Boston and he he concocts a newspaper story which he sends to Bruning's office in Boston and he concocts a a newspaper story he he says we have a transcription. And it's all written, typewritten, double spaced, of this story coming out of Marseille, France, indicating that you have said this derogatory comment about Hitler. And he sends that to Bruning's office at, at the political science department at Harvard. And Bruning opens it up and writes across the top in big uh, capital letters just one word fake. <laughs> and he sends it he sends fake it fake news yes it was it was fake news it was um, yeah. and he sends it back to uh Scholz and Scholz sends another letter registered but now this time Bruning won't have anything to do with Scholz and he says contact my lawyer only Scholz sends a letter and the intimidation is that the indication is that Scholz seemingly indicates i know the addresses of all your relatives back in germany no, doxing and, and what the and Chinese that, are that's doing all he has now. To say. And yep. so then Bruning was taken off the playing field. He, yep. he no longer uttered any um any any derogatory statements against Hitler for the rest of his life. So we really are using this historical lens from the thirties and forties, putting it in the twenty first century and this is real, folks, who are listening to this. And th this is, Professor Gallagher is a scholar. He's done his homework. This is a Harvard University Press, I assume, a peer-reviewed thing, yeah. that book that has gotten awards for its scholarship. So congratulations. But I really, all I can say is I hope somebody who's listening to this who's thinking about what can I do to make a difference in the world, might not go for the popular book topics that are topical, but follow your example to follow your interests of something that might lead to a goldmine of in really incredibly important historical information. 
Well, thank you. I, I mean, I enjoy doing the digging. The, the thing is, you, you just have to keep at it, and it's unclear what the end result's going to be. You, so you just, uh, I guess you just have to have faith. <laughs> yeah, you, fo- you follow, well, I, I was just interviewing someone who said, you follow the money, you follow the money. But in this case, you're following your gut and your, your own life experience of this is really weird. I'm seeing this photo with military rifles, what's up with this? And and um, I don't know. I just think that that what you've done is so important, and we need to get your message out, uh, which is why I invited you. But as we're talking further, more dots are connecting in my mind, and we have to think about educating the public. In my opinion about how disinformation works, how uh, appeals to emotion are subverting our, our common sense and our critical thinking and our, and our value system. And coming back to what I believe is true religion, which is about love and humility and service to others and, 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 and not hatred and, and dogma and blind obedience. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what I think is unfortunate is that Scholes was savvy enough to understand that he could possibly use religion to push Nazi propaganda and espionage in the United States. The FBI never thought it would happen. The, in my research, the FBI doesn't even consider Scholes as having contact with the Christian Front precisely because the Christian Front is a religious organization. And the FBI says, well, you know, there's the protection, the First Amendment protection clause and religious expression clauses, so, and the disestablishment clause. So clearly the Germans would never be working with religious groups. It didn't dawn on it didn't dawn wow. on the FBI. It didn't dawn on the FBI that a foreign intelligence agency would ever work with religious groups to undermine American democracy. But sure wow. enough, that's that's what Scholz and his uh, and you know kind of kind of shaped by shaped by Himmler and and, and shaped by Hess were up to here in Boston. And they were but right, isn't that pretty it, successful. It, in a sense, what's happening now is the co-option of freedom of religion means a yeah. free pass to yeah. lie, steal, cheat, molest children or whatever else. Yeah, well it's it's not only that I think in the in the political sphere that I that I look at, um, I'm more concerned about what I see as a resurgence of what used to be called Christian nationalism. Right. And so the Christian nationalism, which was quite evident in the late 40s and into the mid 50s, dropped off in the 60s, uh, came back a little bit in the 90s through the Christian identity movement. I seem to see they, there's more uh, kind of a, 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 um, an embrace, not an embrace, but there's, a, there's definitely a, a naming of Christian nationalism uh, in the U.S. Uh, these days, and and so that makes me wonder about maybe that particular style of religious expression. Uh, that was what was susceptible to manipulation in the era I study, and mm-hmm. so you can draw your own conclusions about today. 
Yeah, but I have a friend, Carrie Noble, who was one of the top people in a one of the first Christian identity militia groups, the Covenant, the Sword, sure. the Arm of the Lord, and he wrote a book, A Tabernacle of Hate. And, um, you know, he they had a standoff with the FBI. In his case, fortunately, uh, a lot of people didn't die, but um, he actually carried a bomb into a church where there were gay gay practitioners there and um, fortunately had a conscience moment and didn't detonate it. And the man's religious to this day, wanting to help people realize this is not, this is not a sustainable uh, ideology if you care at all about God or mm -hmm. about, about values, or if you have children and you want a, a world where they're safe. This is the exact opposite. And I, I, I've been saying this publicly, Professor, for a bunch of years now, that there are, are forces that want Americans to kill Americans and are deliberately trying to polarize and radicalize. And there is an estimated 20 million AR-15 rifles. Why do we need assault rifles that can shoot a hundred rounds in a was it a minute or in a second that are killing children and are being you know like what what's the mentality is that really freedom to have assault rifles I think Putin and other bad actors just want to arm a lot of disaffected veterans and other people they can radicalize to to create chaos and to uh, to, to dismantle uh, America because they want to do their nasty deeds and they don't want government regulation or this messy thing called human rights. Um, yeah, I so. think in my book, I look at um, particularly at the religious situation and how, how those impulses kind of came into play to bring about then what you're talking about happening these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Professor, I want to thank you. I want to give you the last words, but I also, I'm serious about, I really want to learn more from you. I, I don't know about my availability to attend a class every week for a semester, but I'd love to learn from you. I would love to get an English translation of this dissertation. Uh, and maybe we could do another talk, sure. you know, about that. Yep. And I, before we let you go, I really want you to just give us a teaser for your first book, Vatican Secret Diplomacy, Joseph P. Hurley and Pope Pius Twelfth, please. Yeah, so that was uh, published um, almost 13 years ago now. Um, it's a story of a behind-the-scenes guy, the first American to be named a diplomat for the Vatican. I was able to get into his personal archives and mm -hmm. to kind of sift through those to figure out what the Vatican and the United States were saying and thinking about not only the rise of fascism in Europe, but the position of the Jews in Europe. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of, lot of interesting moral situations that come up, and particularly on how how this person, Joseph Hurley, as an American, was trying to push the Vatican to be more vocal against Nazi Germany. 
and mm-hmm. and so that's in a sense he becomes he he himself is a is in, involved with negotiations with Father Coughlin. So there are lights and shadows in all of this. In mm. both stories, there are kind of lights and shadows. Mm-hmm. There is an anti-fascist Catholic woman in 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 the story uh, of the Christian Front, who also acts as kind of a beacon of hope. Woman mm-hmm. named Frances Sweeney. She becomes an anti-fascist working against Father Coughlin. And mm. so maybe that's what I would leave your audience with, that um, it's not necessarily that that even within the evil structures that we're talking about and that we can see around us, there is some light that can emit, that can be emitted. And there is some there are people with goodness in their hearts who follow the law of love and can uh, push us in the proper direction. Shall we Perfect say. way to end love, Thank, love yes. and truth True. and 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 conscience and common sense. And 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 coming together, uh, not trying to polarize through hate and distrust. So thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. And, it's been and, great uh, to have this conversation. I I love it, and I want to learn from you. So we'll be in touch. All thank right. You. Thank Bye. you again, Steve. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.